Welcome to everyone joining us today. I'm really pleased to be joined with my friend and colleague Jeremy Simmons and the superb Professor Jim McManus, who is joining us uh, to discuss various different things. So, Jim, welcome. Our, our kind of our outlined area is to talk about the faith and recovery uh, from COVID-19, which we hope we will see the end of soon. So it's, uh, well, we're just into February 2021. And so what do you think? What role could faith play in recovery? Um, <clears throat> I think there's, I think there's multiple rules. Sorry, I'm being very, I'm in a very reflective mood this afternoon, so I do apologise. I think there are multiple rules, and it depends on what you mean by recovery. And um, so one of the things we've been doing locally is been looking at how we develop an exit strategy. From and There are three watchwords which we've been using, which will change regularly. And the job of the Health Protection Board, which every area has now, I think, is to create the epidemiological conditions for recovery to start, which is low transmission of COVID, test and trace working well, vaccine uptake really high, you know, and, and a few other things I won't go into. The job of recovery, I think, is to do two things. One is to begin a journey of collective healing and grieving. Because I think it is fair to say, and, and it was Andy Bell from the Centre for Mental Health who coined this term, if I'm right, that we have had a massive major collective trauma. I think the second task of recovery is to try to get back our economic life, our social life. I think the third task is to try and um, deal with some of the significant health and other crises that have not been dealt with through the pandemic and also those that have been caused by the pandemic. So there'll be a big mental health crisis. Yeah. I think there is something more about humanising okay. services in the public square. And I think faith has got a role in all of those. Yeah. Um, and actually quite a deep role. And probably the most important role is to set the foundations of attitude, style, behaviour and culture of how we love and care for one another as society going forward. That's but, interesting, yeah. Yeah, that's probably where I'm coming from right now. I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, so this is still a work in progress, but without the culture, um, we won't recover. And um, I've been praying every day since we went into this for a culture of recover, the right culture and the right skills to recover. Mm. So many different angles to go off. Before I jump in, I'll just, uh, I'll shut up for a minute, just in case Jeremy's got a question he wants to take us off in, or a point to make, Jeremy. Yeah, no, I was just interested in what you were saying about that kind of um, collective grieving and um, an almost kind of, accepting that and not sort of rushing off ahead and, and pretending you know things haven't happened that, that are painful for a lot of people and just 
wondering whether you yeah, have any thoughts in terms of kind of practically what that might look like, although it's not necessarily a practical thing. Um, but also, I, I guess, just touching more broadly on mental health and particularly around the younger generation, because there's been a lot written about how young people are, are, have been quite affected um, by the pandemic in, in terms of mental health. Um, if you could maybe speak to that a little bit as well, if you have any kind of thoughts in that area. Um, so in terms of, so there's no doubt that, um, to going back to this collective trauma, the, the, the ongoing mental health effects from COVID will be significant in terms of grief, in terms of recovery, in terms of traumatisation, in terms of long-term stress, in terms of disrupted growing up. Um, uh, and the Centre for Mental Health has actually published a couple of really good reports on this. Um, what can we do practically? I think there is something about providing people space to make sense and to ask the questions. And um, what can our faith communities do just to welcome and listen and be a caring presence? Uh, and allow people... Who was it? Who was it? Uh, John Bell from the Iona community wrote a book about the Psalms that was published last year, which um, I, I bought in a bookshop. Do you remember them um, when they were open? Uh, and he 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 described he quotes that person who says the Psalms are 150 things God doesn't have mind, mind having said to him. Um, so there's something about allowing anger, you know. Um, the full gamut of emotions to come out and just allowing that venting, providing space where people can be held mm. while we do that in a non-intrusive and loving and, and, and welcoming way. So that, I think, is the first thing our churches can do. I think the second thing our churches can do is help people make sense. The third thing they can do is actually practical stuff around putting our arms around people who are grieving physically, emotionally and spiritually. The fourth thing is articulate a way to recovery and, and articulate um, how to find hope and meaning and and come through this real intense period of suffering. And the fifth thing, I think, is obviously train people up to deal with trauma. So we have a trauma network in Hertfordshire which, uh, where we, we train 60 people. And the vast majority of them were volunteer and paid chaplains. And so, so it's those kinds of things. And there are models out there. There's a day course that we can run for people. Uh, and then I think in terms of young people, there is something about how do we take this huge disruption that young people had growing up? Well, there are lessons from the war. I, I mean, I kid you not, genuinely, because this is probably the biggest collective trauma since the Second World War for many people. Mm -hmm. So there are lessons about how to help young people make sense of it produce art, produce creative things from it, enable a, a, a creative outflowing of that through our schools and also enable them to make sense of it in their own way, but perhaps actually develop further preventive services. So um, we know that referrals to eating disorder services for young people have gone through the ceiling. Right. Well, that's because we're failing to prevent stuff. So how do we prevent stuff? Well, we need to do more stuff around talking about mental health, giving young people tools and skills to understand how they're feeling. So there's a whole load of work you could do there. We have a Just Talk programme locally. But the Children's Society 
Church of England Children's Society is a brilliant little leaflet for people. So the, their, their faith communities have massive models of this that could be used for preventive work, because what's quite clear, we cannot afford to treat and provide psychiatric and psychological support for every person who's been traumatised by COVID, but we can afford to provide low-level pastoral care and love and support and preventive stuff. Mm. So, Jeremy, I think there's a... You'll forgive me for saying this, but there's a whole programme of work in what you've just raised. No, I, I think you're right there, Chuck. Um, I think it, it warrants, it warrants, it warrants more, more consideration and because some of these things are the problem I think we sometimes find is, and I'm sure you see this as well, is you've got so many different areas to, to cover and look at and that kind of thing. And it, just, it feels that there are some things to develop. And I think certainly looking, as you say, about how did we, how did, how was recovery good from the war, the Second World War, and what can we learn about what went well and what didn't go well there? Um, although having said that we should dip down, I want to take us on a different direction. <laughs> Uh, you talked about this collective, this cultural change. Uh, do you think that because faith has, and I would say yet again, faith has responded to a crisis, has been seen, whether it even be more recently with uh, a particular Sikh community and the Salvation Army uh, responding to the truckers stranded near Dover and all those kind of things. It's been it's been quite visual this time and people would have been um they would have received deliveries uh from place of worship, uh, food banks and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um they would have uh potentially accessed those services in, in a broader sense and actually a broader range of society um this time. Do you think that potentially we've earned the right as as faith communities to have a say in, in the development of, of what is, but I suppose we're talking about UK culture here. <clears throat> the short answer is yes. The longer answer is who is it to say that we haven't got a right anyway? Um, because we're in this world where we're, supposedly we are in a world of hyper diversity and hyper-inclusivity and there is no meta-narrative, right? So so every narrative, well, if that's the case, every narrative is equally valid and why should we accept the secularising narrative that we don't have a place? Because if everything is legitimate, we're legitimate and just refuse to accept the fact that we're not. Mm-hmm. And you will understand that's my usual shy, retiring way of dealing with things. Um, uh, and um, But as far as I'm concerned... The Equality Act gave us rights too, and we have a right to speak in the public square, and we speak from our actions. Now, okay, awful things have been done in the name of faith in the past. You know, the mother and baby clinic, the mother and baby home, you know, which was actually not a model started in Ireland. It was a model started in Britain, if I, if we want a history lesson. Um, right, awful things have been done by others in the past. Um, that you know, why why is the BBC allowed to speak in the public square, despite its failures over Jamie Savile when others aren't? It's not minimising these failures. It is just that we refuse to accept that we don't have a right to speak. Therefore, we do, 
and we do have a right to speak and we speak both from commitment to human flourishing and from practical sharp end of experience of making it happen so i would just say never give up our right to be part of the um, public square very interesting yeah and i suppose part then then comes as how can we have a coherent voice or maybe we don't have to have a coherent voice um it certainly would not be easy to get it um in in terms of um how we well i, I suppose what areas that we should be speaking about and maybe it's back to the, the mental health area I, I it feels to me that um that the health inequality issues that we're hitting at the moment when it comes particularly to uh, black minority ethnic uh, groups who are, have, have suffered disproportionately and also potentially a, a more uh, reticent about vaccine, mm. that although the focus, and I'm in many groups, many discussions now looking for faith uh, leaders and faith communities to kind of speak in favour of, of um, regulation in favour of a vaccine and those kind of things, and I think that's all worthy stuff. And it, it it's a short term solution, but of course, the it's it was it was utterly predictable that those with the worst outcomes, those that are uh, um, in, in terms of health and actually social economically, were going to be hit worse by COVID in that kind of thing. And it feels to me that there is there is maybe something on inequalities point that has to be raised and and championed i I don't know if you feel you can see a fusing between those things in terms of or 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 what area you feel should be if we were to say right we're going to take up this particular issue which which area it should be i think that there is a fusing so if you start from the science what we know about the science is that the people who are poorest and the people who are least equal are the people who are hit hardest. And you just need to look at black, Asian and minority ethnic communities in COVID and, and that is writ large all over it. Um, so you start from that position of inequalities. What do faith communities have to offer? And it doesn't have to be one single unified voice. What we have to offer is advocating for the interests of our populations when they are suffering structural inequalities, injustice and racism in the same way that anybody else would. And we should be entirely upfront about that. Yeah. Um, I think the second thing is um, we have to offer reach into those communities that can reach them and can enable them to think theologically about why a vaccine, about why face masking, about why solidarity with others. Because what we know is that faith faith can help people understand their health and meaning. And we know that there is, a, there is at the root of health, from all our evidence, uh, a strong aspect of meaning purpose uh, uh, and and spirituality and for us as christians that's that's about 
our faith comes in context from the fact that we are creatures. So faith is is a relational thing between God, self, neighbour and the environment around us. Or it is nothing. It is not an individual thing, our health. Uh, and neither is our faith. And therefore we can we can speak into this space and we can we can reach people. So who better than us to reach people of faith yeah. and reach diverse communities and get them to do the vaccine? I think the problem is that um, we still have a squeamishness in the public square about speaking about faith. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and we're in this era of hyperdiversity, you know. So this idea that that you can have one equality strand, you know, so you can be a person of faith or you can be, um, you know, an Asian. Um, uh, you know, um, I love it when 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 people meet all those Catholics from India, the Karalian Catholics and the other Catholics who people assume are Hindus or Muslims because of their dress and their language. Um, and the same when you meet um, uh, uh, Muslim, Muslim Chinese, because there are millions of them, right. uh, because actually that reminds us that diversity is multiple. So our response should be multiple as well. It seems you said, um, uh, I think it was the author Brandon Robertson said, um, God is far more diverse than we can possibly imagine, and that is that is what it means when we're made in God's image. Mm-hmm. Well, so our responses to encouraging people to recover from COVID can be equally diverse. Yeah, yeah. On on some of the calls that I've been part of relating to this, it would seem that the issue of trust is one of the biggest issues certainly relation to uh to vaccine but potentially i suppose relation to other issues as well uh, and one of the things that came up today i'll be interested you've heard this is that actually there seems to be a better initial uptake of vaccine in older people but then they are off put by younger relatives who say who picked up on fake news or or potentially have a greater sense of distrust and i'm wondering if if the whole area of trust is one well we don't want to essentialize faith for the sake of the state just to just to kind of say right we will use all the social capital or faith capital for another term uh to enable the state to do what the state wants to do but i just wonder if there is something about trust in in these things there is and i think um i, I often find myself well it was thomas aquinas who said there are two books of creation there's a book of god's scriptures and there's a book of god's creation i.e the sciences as some people interpret it uh, and that rings true because actually what we know from scientific evidence social scientific evidence is the greater the level of trust and engagement with people in a crisis the more people will do what we need them to do and do the right thing and pull together in solidarity. The poorer the the investment in trust, the poorer the investment in solidarity and the poorer the trust. So psychology, I think, is suggesting things that faith is perhaps forgotten, actually, in some respects, and we need to relearn that you need to trust and you need solidarity 
Uh, and you need to build this in from the start, particularly in our intake up from the vaccine. And there is something about older people being more trusting. Um, now, you could put that down to trust in authority figures, or you could put it down to trust in institutions that moral that have a moral commitment to have their best interests at heart. But there's a lot of younger people um, will listen to misinformation. And the people who are listening, listening most to misinformation are actually the middle-aged ones, not the retired ones. Right. Uh, and, and people down into their 30s and 40s. I think there is a fundamental problem when government instrumentalises things for the sake of turning them into delivery mechanisms rather than for the sake of creating networks of trust. Um, and there's a there's a really... You've heard, I'm going to talk the S word, subsidiarity. So well, I think yeah. subsidiarity means the lowest level you can put stuff at. Um, uh, that's about 1% of it. There's There's vertical subsidiarity, which is which is the fact that structures of the state should be subordinate to the human being. Well, none of us have ever managed that. But there's horizontal subsidiarity, which is networks of participation and trust. And when you turn something like faith into a delivery instrument, what do you do with the networks of trust? When you turn something like schools into a delivery element uh, instrument, what do you do to networks of trust? You need networks of trust and participation for people to do that. And I think that's been one of our problems in this pandemic, is that we we lost that at some point. So we need to rebuild it. Yeah. And I suppose maybe, maybe it'll be interesting to see what people say as they study the various lockdowns we've been through and the, the initial high level of compliance and maybe the latter lack of compliance and, and whether maybe it was novelty that made people uh, more uh, compliant to start with and not necessarily trust but I think that that whole discussion of trust and how we build it and and it would seem to me from what you've said if, it, if it's people in their 20s and 40s it feels like there's, a, there's maybe a dose of postmodern kind of not trusting the experts not trusting people that is, is part of the factor there or a kind of hyper individualism anyway which says i need to know and i need to not um not submit my my thoughts and my ideas to others it's lovely this doesn't feel like recording a a podcast this feels like just having a think um what i felt i've needed all week really i think you're onto something with 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 both of those i think there is something about the hyper individualism that means trust nobody trust nothing and then there is something also about the um, the other point you made about um, the distrust of experts and the two have fed off each other. And there is almost a part where, and I know I know some people love him, some people don't, but um, Ben uh, from Ipsos Mori um, has Ipsos Mori have done some really good, interesting stuff on people's views. Right. Listening to him talk about trust, engagement, and things, and then dialoguing that from a faith perspective of <laughs> sorry, that was uh, that was yet another social media. Uh, sorry, yet another video thing trying to get through. Which one was that? Uh, that, that, that was Skype. Oh. That was Skype. But that's a Skype call trying to come through and still trying to come through uh, fifteen minutes early. 
So there cool. you go. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll try a number of to- other times. I'll try and message. Uh, I'll try and message the. Uh, my phone. Um, uh, so yes. So, yeah, sorry, you were talking about Ben. Well, I think I think, and if I could remember what his name was, I was just from London. You forgot what he said. But there's something about sitting dialoguing with that perspective around trust and and faith, and I still can't find his name. Um, and um, oh, looking at what our capabilities are, and looking at how we can speak into this, because you know. That, that lovely image of a sort of Miss Marple world where everybody did as they were told and respected <laughs> I mean, if it ever happened, nobody really wants to go back there. But we do need to find some way of listening to, understanding, loving and engaging with one another, don't we? Yeah. Um, I. It just feels like we come back to in this, these things... It's, it's, there's not there's not a quick fix. Some of the issues for me, it keeps we keep coming to some of the issues that are just fundamental issues. They they keep coming back again and again. And and I and I have I have been challenged by some faith commentators to talk about not just faith becoming a delivery uh, mechanism. And I and I think it is. But, but yet there is a side where we, we do want to make a difference and do want to um, be a positive change in in things we see right in front of our face as well. So I, I, I feel we can do it all. <laughs> That's part of my thing. I think we can both be a, a positive, for one of another term, a positive physical change as well as being a moral um, or a place of moral consideration anyway. Um, I think you're right. I mean, this afternoon we had... Um... So I was sat on a, a webinar. Hang on, my, my system's going a bit um, funny. We were sat on a webinar with the government, um, and um, local authorities busy saying, "You know, we can do it all." Yeah. Um, we we could we have we have we have. Um, so we had local government saying we can be a delivery mechanism for all these things. So at the minute we're delivering mass testing, we're delivering testing. <laughs> We're delivering surge testing, we're supporting vaccination centres, blah, 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 blah. And we're also saying we're indispensable for networks of trust for our areas. Now, that kind of is, and government's accepting it. I mean, it, it keeps talking local by default. It hasn't quite understood it. And it still treats local government as an instrument rather than a uh-huh. in its own right. But aren't we saying, it, 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 you know, I... If local government get away with it, and okay, they are—they have a legitimacy around place, but so do we. Yeah, it's the same for us. You can do both. You can, uh, you can critique government, and you can be an instrument of delivery, and you can participate in these debates and networks. Why can't you? Yeah. Um, so I think it's just—I uh, do sometimes think. I wish I wish people in national government would spend a year working in local government. I wish people in local government would spend a year working in national. And I wish people in faith communities would spend a year working in some agencies who do think they can do it all. Because one of the things I think that holds us back is sometimes we're just a bit too restraining of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe maybe that's the maybe that's what we've come up with on on 
ways of recovery. Maybe it's an exchange program we need to kick up on. Jim, um, I'm aware of time and uh, aware uh, that you have had one heck of a heavy time um, over the past few days. So I don't want to take any more of your time, but I get the feeling we're going to need to come back to this. Well, I, I think that I think there's there's probably a series of sort of yeah there's 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 a longer conversation to build more people and engage yeah. more people, isn't there? I'm wondering if I mean let's uh, we'll let our we'll let our uh, we'll let our listeners go now. So thank you for joining us, and um, we're gonna we're gonna have some offline time. You and I discussing this and what can come next. So watch this space. Mm-hmm.